The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions red which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed, and on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Hello. I'm Jack Wilson, and that, of course, was Brian Cranston in his role as Walter White, reading the classic poem Ozymandias by Percy Shelley. Ruins. What a haunting concept. There's something eerie about ruins, about the way grand kingdoms are leveled to the ground, and just there, waiting for us, the living, the lowly, to wander through the rubble. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. And even those mighty works now drift into the sands of serenity. Why should we despair? Despair for our inability to be as grand as Ozymandias? Or do we despair that we too will someday go the way of even the King of Kings? That's the question that Shelley puts before us so beautifully. It's a poem about fallen hubris. But we're all full of hubris, each and every one of us, not just kings. There's something inescapably hubristic about merely being alive. Being alive at all is a thumb in the eye of everyone dead. Ha ha, sucks to be you, dead person. If I've said that once, I've said it a thousand times. And yet, we know that this hubris won't last. Oh God, do we ever know that? Back to the poetry. Ozymandias was written in 1818, and Shelley, of course, was one of our great romantic poets, so I was a little surprised when a professor of modernist poetry suggested that we devote an episode to the ruins in modernist poetry. What could the modernist do that Shelley hadn't already done? Hadn't he basically ended the subject with Ozymandias? The answer, of course, was no, he hadn't. The modernists came through. We're going to look at four modernist poets today, all of whom took a different angle on the subject of ruins. There are some commonalities that they have with each other. All of them subvert Shelley's themes in one way or another. But they are also very different. The modernists are original. They do not disappoint. Hey, speaking of disappointing, I hope this podcast is not disappointing to you. The best way to keep up with all of the episodes is to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Or you can find us on historyofliterature.com or our reinvigorated Facebook page at Facebook slash History of Literature. We'd love to have you join us for all the episodes, even after this somewhat strange, somewhat baffling, somewhat dark set of poems that we're going to be looking at today with the help of our guest, Bill Hogan, a professor and expert in modernist poetry. What can I say? I didn't promise you happy endings. I promised only that literature would call forth all our powers. That's the best we can do. And man, if these four poets don't call forth at least some of your powers, you're not doing it right. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, I'm joined now by Professor Bill Hogan, who is an Associate Professor of English and Director of the Center for Engaged Learning at Providence College in Providence, Rhode Island. Professor Hogan, welcome to the History of Literature podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Jack. It's great to be here. So I'm really looking forward to this discussion. We're going to be talking about the poetry of ruins. And we just started out with Shelley's famous poem, Ozymandias, which I was familiar with. But you pointed me toward a whole new world of ruins in 20th century poetry. So we're going to have Yeats and Frost and Stevens coming up. But first, we'll we'll look at a poem by the classic modernist poet H.D. But before we get there, let's explain what we mean by modernism. Do you have a working definition of modernism? Well, that's been something that's been much debated, for sure. But I think there are certain traits or ideas that uh, we tend to associate with the literature and the art of this period. Okay. I think, first of all, it's it's worth recalling some of the really titanic intellectual history of the later 19th century to set some of the context for the emergence of modernism. Um, think about Freud and Marx hmm. and Darwin, um, these thinkers proposing really dramatic, almost Copernican shifts in the way we understand our world, for, you know, Marx completely rethinking the relation of labor and um, and ownership or Freud exploring the subconscious as um, territory that hadn't been thought about in quite that same way. So you've got these really uh, tectonic shifts in intellectual history happening. And here, 
I think the modernist artists are trying to respond to that. Mm. Um, so in terms of a thumbnail definition, you know, one thing people mention or one thing that you'll notice in many modernist works of art is a self-conscious embrace of the new, mm-hmm. um, particularly in form. So rejecting anything that seems like it came from the previous century, rejecting Victorian manners or decorum or propriety in favor of experiment, experiment for the sake of experiment. Okay. So this kind of embrace of the new. And we, we, sorry, we see that in, in music with Stravinsky. We see that in, in art and painting. And it's just a, a whole flowering that really takes us into a different, uh, a whole different world from the world of Shelley, for example. Right. And artists have always innovated, of course. But, um, I think, for example, you look at a Van Gogh or you look at a Matisse or a Picasso and you can see that, um, here are artists that are, uh, deliberately pushing the boundaries of what their art form is supposed to be allowed to do or is, is able to do. And you see some similar things in, in the poets and novelists that you're, that you're mentioning. Mm-hmm. And what first drew you to modernist poetry? Was there a particular poet or poem, or were you excited about the whole period, or, or why did you choose to specialize in this? I, I mean, when I was young, I, I was always attracted to the weirdness of it, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. It seemed like a puzzle to me. I think my introduction to modernism was reading James Joyce, a portrait of the artist as a young man, or the Dubliners stories, which just seemed so penetrating into the consciousness of the characters, mm-hmm. which, which, by the way, is another um, kind of hallmark of modernism, is this idea that focusing on subjective experience, trying to trace that as accurately as possible. Right. Um, people may have heard that phrase, stream of consciousness, for example. Um, but anyway, it was the difficult, it was the weirdness of it, the, the, um, the, the self-conscious um, experimentalism that, that attracted me when I was young. But as I've gotten older, I must say that I find that less interesting. That seems like, you know, this, um, a, a young man's game to just break rules for the sake of breaking rules. Right. Um, I was going to say that it, it sounds like you were drawn to the rebelliousness of it when you were, when you were a young man. But actually the weirdness is, is not just there to break rules, is it? No. And as I get older, I, I think I'm more and more fascinated with the ambition of mm-hmm. so many of these works. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that art can create its own realities. Um, so many of these, Modernists, I think, believed that their art could um, create new worlds in, a, in an almost literal sense. Yeats, for example, the Irish poet William Butler Yeats, thought of the poet as um, as a kind of bard or a kind of uh, almost oracle figure who mm-hmm. is bringing new new realities into existence through the works of art, and that kind of ambition is interesting to me now. And we definitely see that in Joyce. And I just reread an essay by Virginia Woolf where she recognizes that tendency in Joyce and and seems to approve of it. And I think she went on herself to uh, set out to accomplish something similar. Yeah. And now now a lot of readers, I think, would see... look at that kind of ambition and they see it as willful difficulty or a kind of elitism or something like that, where here are these artists that don't seem to make accommodations for their readers. They're not uh, making the works accessible to the readers in a, you know, in an easy kind of way. 
and that is a that is a challenge that is a problem to reading these works um if they're really difficult to get into who are they for right Okay, well, I think we'll see some examples of that, but actually the poems you've chosen I found to be uh, very accessible, and some of them uh, simple, not simplistic, but uh, simple of language and diction and, and easy to uh, in, take in, in in a first read. Uh, well, actually, before we begin with the modernists, what did you think of Ozymandias? Well, one of the interesting things about about that poem is that it's part of a really a tradition of ruined poems. You mm -hmm. think about Wordsworth's Tintern Abbey, ah, right. um, or, or Browning's Love Among the Ruins. Um, you know, this is a pretty common trope in poetic history, and particularly in the 19th century. And in, in those poems, I think you see some recurring themes. Mm -hmm. You know, in Ozymandias, you know, the, this awe at the skillfulness of whoever created the statue originally, and then um, a, a speculation or a curiousness about how it fell into... into decay. Mm -hmm. And then I think a hint of nostalgia, or more than a hint of nostalgia, you know, there's a, a about a world that has been lost. Right. That's a nice, that's a really interesting contrast with the poems we're going to be looking at, where I don't think you see that kind of nostalgia. And, I, you know, instead, the, the modernist versions of ruin, I think, are forward looking. The ruin is generative. It's uh, the image enables a route forward for poetry or for art as opposed to looking backwards to history and saying how did we lose what we lost and and could we get back to this to this prior time right okay well that seems to lead us right into hd uh who wrote a, a long set of poems about ruins in the collection the trilogy which starts out with the first part the walls do not fall and my understanding is that she wrote these uh, almost immediately after, or maybe even at the tail end of living through the London Blitz. So that seems to suggest to me why perhaps uh, there was no nostalgia for her in looking back at the ruins. This was something that was immediate and direct and powerful. and Absolutely, and de deeply personal, too. I mean, she was an American citizen who was living with her companion, uh, Briar, who is, was a British citizen. In London during the Blitz, and and you know she had opportunities to evacuate or even to come back to the States during the war, but she deliberately chose not to and stayed in the city, which by all accounts was a kind of spectral place during the Blitz. Many many people evacuated, mm. and so there's this kind of almost esprit de corps among the people who lived in the city, particularly uh, particularly women, because it was you know not considered a safe place for women for women to be right um so it was a deeply personal experience for her and i think in this poem she's trying to uh make something of the ruin of her neighborhood really mm -hmm. um and the terror she felt uh you know during the air raids when she didn't know if her house was going to be um reduced to rubble she's trying to make something out of those those horrors that can become art or that can become a, that can become a poem. Well, the the shift to poetry is interesting because the one thing I would say that this poem is not is sort of a news account of the Blitz. It's it's definitely the the Blitz as it as it moves through her poetic imagination and she's drawing upon themes and looking for imagery and looking for resonances in other cultures and across other civilizations. So it, it seems to be maybe the Blitz as only HD might experience it. 
Absolutely. I mean, well, maybe maybe let's look at the very opening of the poem. First of all, this is, a, as you mentioned, it's a long poem. It's made up of, of many cantos. And maybe we'll just focus our attention at the very opening of the poem. Okay. And there's a, uh, an epigraph here. Um, to Briar, as I said, her companion, for Karnak, 1923, from London, 1942... And you're talking about how this is a personal utterance for HD. No one else. It's not a documentary um, history of the Blitz. Well, she had traveled to an Egyptian temple complex in 1923 mm. with Briar from London, 1942. So her, uh, you know, present day experience of the Blitz. And the whole, the poem I think tries to wed or somehow bring those two experiences in her life together: the visit to the Egyptian ruin and the ruin that her London neighborhood had become. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, it's a personal history that the poem traces, but again, trying to uh, make out of the ruin of, of London 1942 some uh, path forward for, for, for herself as a poet. Right. Okay. Well, is there a, a particular passage you want to read? So why don't we read the opening... I don't know, uh, 20 or so lines. Okay. And it begins, An incident here and there, and rails gone for guns, from your and my old town square. Mist and mist gray, no color, still the Luxor bee, chick and hare, pursue unalterable purpose in green, rose-red lapis. They continue to prophesy from the stone papyrus. There... As here, ruin opens the tomb, the temple. Enter, there as here, there are no doors. The shrine lies open to the sky, the rain falls here, there. Sand drifts, eternity endures, ruin everywhere. Yet, as the fallen roof leaves the sealed room open to the air, so through our desolation thoughts stir, inspiration stalks us through gloom mm. to me she's again making that connection between uh what she saw in egypt she talks about the how the the images on the wall of the temple in egypt the luxor bee the chick the hair which were drawn on the walls of those ruins in green and rose red and lapis uh, pigments um they continue to prophesy from the stone papyrus so these these ancient images on the ancient ruin are continuing to speak to her. She says, there, in Egypt, in other words, as here in London, ruin opens the tomb. Mm. The shrine lies open to the sky. In both of these places, she says, ruin everywhere. Yet, as the fallen roof leaves the sealed room open to the air, so through our desolation, thoughts stir. Inspiration stalks us. So what struck me as I was... Uh, as I as I read this poem, is that if her London neighborhood had not been reduced to rubble, these connections, these possibilities, these um, resources for art would never have been laid bare for her. That would never have been made visible um, for her. That's not to say she's celebrating the the destruction. I mean, you can hear the the terror and the anxiety in the lines, but but again, the the ruin is generative. She it connects her to that personal history of her visit to Egypt, and it, it it looks forward for what she can do from here. Inspiration stalks us through gloom. Right. It's such a marvelous phrase. I mean, it, one of the themes we didn't talk about that's in Ozymandias and is a a common poetic theme is how 
art can endure beyond uh, death and destruction. And in Shelley, it's it's you know that these there's the sculptor whose passions yet survive, even though this this statue has crumbled and is starting to kind of melt away into the dust. But with HD, I mean, inspiration stalks us. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's almost like you don't have a choice. You don't have. You're compelled. You're drawn in. The the uh, I guess the the fierce presence of it or the directness of it is right there before you. And and really, if you're any sort of thinking person, you will be uh, almost attacked by what this means and and forced to make decisions about about what it means to you. That's great. Yeah, it's almost as if she's compelled to uh, to write to write um, as a result of living through this trauma. And there's more of a detachment in the Ozymandias. I, I I think you're right about that. Yeah, definitely. And in the Ozymandias, I mean, the the beginning of it is I met a traveler from an antique land who said, "quote," and it really is. You know, there's this frame around it of who the speaker right. even is, and it it really has very little to do with the poet. Even if even if we accept the traveler as a character, there isn't much in there that you think would resonate with the traveler. It's almost like an omniscient narrator. But with HD, we're seeing, like you said, uh, in modernism, the way it's impacting an individual and a person, and the speaker and the poet are are central to uh, the concerns of the poem. Yeah, it's her own psychic history that is that is partly on display here, and that's interesting when you think about the theme of the ruin. Because is is one ruined by a traumatic experience? Is is the psychic terrain that she's mapping in the poem a kind of ruin? On the other hand, I think the poem actually is arguing that she is uh, is able to persevere, that she's going to be able to move forward. At the very end of that first canto, maybe read a few more lines. I think she makes this point that she is not in ruins. She's planning. She's she's able to persevere and she's moving forward. She says at the end, the bone frame, like the skeleton, the bone frame was made for no such shock knit within terror. In other words, our skeletons were not made to withstand the bombs going off in our neighborhood. Shock knit within terror. Yet the skeleton stood up to it. The flesh, it was melted away. The heart burned out, dead ember, tendons, muscles shattered, outer husk dismembered. Yet the frame held. We passed the flame. We wonder what saved us, what for. So the, this this image that we are made up of bone and flesh, well, flesh by this, this bomb trauma is burned away, melted away, burnt out. But the bone frame stands on, right? Mm-hmm. The skeleton stood up to it. And uh, allows the passing of the flame. And, and I, when I think of the skeleton, you know, of that Karnak uh, temple complex, that what has persevered, not the inhabitants of that place, but the structure, the bones of it have, have persevered. And that's what passes the flame on from, from the ancient Egyptians to HD. And now HD has, has survived the London Blitz to pass the flame. Right. And those questions are so haunting. We wonder what saved us, what for. And you just know that HD is not going to answer those. She wants those questions to to hang in the air. It ends the canto. And uh, we can all ask that, you know, why why did we survive? Why we were we the ones? And instead of setting out some agenda of what she's going to do now with this this second chance at life, she lets it hang there so that we all feel the responsibility of surviving. Yeah, the, 
I mean, that's a great phrase, the responsibility of surviving. I think the idea of responsibility really runs through this poem, Why Have I? Uh, and as the poem goes on, she, she, Why Have I, the woman poet in particular, been spared? What is my job now that I have been spared or saved this trauma, this destruction? What must I do? Mm. Okay, well, that's a great poem. Everybody should read it. Uh, let's move on to the next one. Uh, Robert Frost. Uh, and you chose The Directive by Robert Frost. Now, this one was written in 1946, which is also uh, right in the aftermath of World War II, although we're back in America now, so maybe the devastation, although it, I'm sure it's in his mind, um, is uh, it's not as immediate as The Blitz. And in some ways, it seems like we're in the familiar Robert Frost territory where he's walking through the woods, reflecting on the people who've lived in the area. And and this is kind of, I think Frost is a little bit misleading. I think sometimes we have the the sense of him as kind of the Norman Rockwell of poetry. And instead, there's a lot of uh, dark undercurrents. And this poem in particular gets strange very quickly, uh, even Absolutely. though uh, on the surface it might seem like it's uh, just a, a a man in in his middle age. I think he was about 60 when he wrote the poem. And it, although it may seem like it's just somebody walking through the woods thinking nostalgic thoughts and reflecting on uh, human beings and their relationships with one another, and instead it takes kind of a turn. So... What what exactly are we looking at in this poem? Well, it like you say, it is a first person. Well, it's it, it's actually a second person story, which is which is one of its strangenesses. Um, it's addressed to a you, so right. the speaker is addressing. Uh, it's as if the speaker is acting as tour guide. Yeah. Um, or maybe but, he's talking to himself. Another possibility. Right. But the landscape of the poem is important to notice too. That you know, as in Frost, there it is uh, set in a wilderness kind of landscape. Um, but they're walking through a mountain in the northeast that has beginning to to overgrow back into forest. So whereas some of those mountain landscapes um, before Frost's time would have been. Uh, populated with with uh, farmers and miners, now we're getting second growth forest um, on the mountain. And so, as as we walk through this poem, um, they see around that you know the the speaker sees around him abandoned cellar holes and you know places where people had lived, mm -hmm. quarries and so on. Uh, so it's it's a it seems on the surface like a natural landscape. But in fact, it is an abandoned human landscape. It, you know, nature and human, nature and culture are really interwoven in this poem in an interesting way. Right. And the, the, the cellar holes in the ground are just, um, several images just jump out. It really is striking. And there's also like a, a children's playhouse. Right. Which is very eerie. I mean, it, when I read that line, I think of that horrifying moment in The Shining when the elevator door opens and there are the twins. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, maybe let's look at the at the last uh, maybe 20 lines of the poem where we see the children's playhouse and, and basically he's reflecting on, a, on an abandoned house. And we, so this is, this is beginning with line 39. He says, then make yourself at home. The only field now left no bigger than a harness gull. First, 
There's the children's house of make-believe, some shattered dishes underneath a pine, the playthings in the playhouse of the children. Weep for what little things could make them glad. Then for the house that is no more a house, but only a belilacked cellar hole, now slowly closing like a dent in dough. This was no playhouse, but a house in earnest. Now that, that I mean, the imagery there and that just that ten lines again, oh. very eerie. The idea of um, the a house that is no more a house. It was once inhabited, but now is just a belilac cellar hole, um, gradually closing in like a dent in dough. I know. <laughs> I found that to be. I mean. Um... You know, Lionel Trilling said that he found Robert Frost poems terrifying. Absolutely. And I've I've felt that way here when I read that. Just imagining I mean, in some ways it's a beautiful image in the sense of it's just a perfect image. A dent in dough. It's universal and timeless. If you've ever worked with dough, you know exactly what that's like. But the idea that the earth is swallowing up what used to be uh, a whole village full of houses and that right. they are disappearing to be as um to be as eradicated as just a few dents in dough and yet so this is what's really interesting to me about these modernist ruined poems just as in hd the terror of surviving the blitz is balanced or tempered by her resolve to continue to write and mm-hmm. um, this persevering um these terrifying images, if we leave it with Trilling and say that Frost is terrifying full stop, we miss something so essential to his poetry. I mean, there's no accident that so many people think of Frost as the Norman Rockwell of American poetry that, you know, with these comforting images, because I think that the terrifying images which are here are balanced with something else. And if you carry on um, to the end of the of the poem here, uh, after he sees this abandoned place, the... the um, to-be-eradicated house, as you say, the speaker kind of discovers this life-giving spring and <laughs> leads to a beautiful final image. He says, um, Your destination and your destinies, a brook that was the water of the house, cold as a spring, as yet so near its source, too lofty and original to rage. We know the valley streams that, when aroused, will leave their tatters hung on barb and thorn. I have kept hidden in the instep arch of an old cedar at the waterside a broken drinking goblet like the grail under a spell so the wrong ones can't find it. So can't get saved, as St. Mark says they mustn't. I stole the goblet from the children's playhouse. Here are your waters and your watering place. Drink and be whole again beyond confusion. And it's fascinating because, yes, we have that... (laughs) Maybe the the comforting Norman Rockwell Frost there at the end, drink and be whole again beyond confusion. But what do we do with the fact that this goblet has been hidden so the wrong ones can't find it? (laughs) And um, he stole the goblet from the children's playhouse. Frost is constantly undercutting the notion that this is a poem about being comforted or or a walk through the woods to, to soothe the mind. Right. Um, at the same time, it's it's not entirely terrifying. I guess that's a, the point I want to make. Well, if if you think about a, a restorative goblet with a, a beautiful, clear water from a running stream, you think of maybe something standing on a pedestal with a, a, a sunbeam shining down on it. Instead, here we have this 62-year-old man stalking his way through a children, an abandoned, decrepit children's playhouse, stealing the goblet. You know, it's... Right, right. <laughs> And then um, hiding it. 
hiding it underneath, you know, an old cedar at the waterside. Yeah. So what do we make of the behold again beyond confusion? Is he saying, is is that a, a ray of hope or is that something that he's saying, uh, ironically, like you will never achieve what I'm what I'm suggesting you might achieve here? Well, I think I don't. It's not a simple ray of hope. I would say that because mm-hmm. there's a certain irony to the whole poem. The very opening right. lines are back out of all this now too much for us. Right. In other words, the, it opens by saying, all right, let's back out of a time that has become confusing or is overwhelming to us. Let's, And, and he acknowledges that that is a nostalgic and unrealistic position because he says back out of all this now too much for us, back in a time made simple by the loss of detail. In other words, we can back out of this now too much for us, but we're we should acknowledge that we're going back to a time made simple, uh, you know, that's that's been simplified in our minds by the loss of detail. Right. We don't see it clearly any longer. Um, and so when at the end he says, you know, take my stolen grail and drink and be whole again beyond confusion, I, do, I don't think we can read that without irony. We can't say, oh, look, everything, you know, everything's been resolved. The confusion has been has been uh, has been settled and so on. Do you think the back out of all this now too much for us? Do you think, do you, do you hear the hints there of uh, the themes we talked about earlier of the changes in intellectual paradigms and, and being uh, the shifting ground underneath one's feet, so to speak, of Freud and Marx and all of the Darwin and all of the established ideas being undermined? Absolutely. And trying to, trying to find some solid ground on, on which to walk, to walk. But, but I do think, again, for me, one of the hallmarks of modernism, and many readers would say modernist art testifies to how unsettling and really horrible the modern world is. But to me, that misses the essential uh, paradox in these poems that even while it's anxious about the shifting ground beneath your feet that you're talking about, you know, these works of art are being made out of those materials. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, it almost seems like the artists are keeping themselves honest. And the ones, you know, when you read, like, for example, Virginia Woolf's essay, the the people that she's rejecting are the ones who don't take this on. And the ones that she's reserving for praise are the ones who do address these mysteries and these difficulties. Yeah, it's a great point. Okay, so let's. We have two more poets. Let's take a look at uh, Yeats, and I. I confess, I'm starting to see a pattern here, which is that HD was in her late fifties when she wrote the poem we looked at, and Frost, I guess, was sixty-two, and now here's Yeats, age sixty-three, and I'm wondering if uh, part of the reason why we're seeing so many of these poems about ruins is we're 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 hitting these poets at a time in their life when they're looking back at their past and they know they maybe have more past than future and they're uh, recalling their lost childhood and maybe their bodies are starting to break down and it, and maybe Yeats is the place to to start talking about that. Absolutely. I mean, it's one of Yeats's great themes, the idea that his body is breaking down and yet his imagination is still so on fire. Um, <laughs> how can he balance that? How can he balance the... Uh, you know, his imaginative power that he feels really viscerally right. with the fact that his body is um, is just failing him. Right. And in and, this this poem in particular, he's really he's he's specifically thinking back to his childhood. T- true. Um, but it opens. So the, this poem, The Tower, is that the. Uh, yes. Right. So uh, the tower 
is another long poem set in three sections. And the first section, it begins with exactly the dilemma that you're talking about. What shall I do with this absurdity? O heart, O troubled heart, this caricature, decrepit age that has been tied to me as to a dog's tail. So the absurdity is, you know, that his, the fact that he's getting older, um, that he looks like an old man, like a caricature of an old man. Um, he carries that around with him as, as if, um, it had been tied to him, like as to a dog's tail. Um, so it begins with the idea that, um, he's trying to find a way to resolve the, you know, the continuing power of his mind against the, the breakdown of his body. Right. And the thing that really jumped out at me when I read, when I read this is, you know, there's, there's plenty in here about the childhood, um, his childhood and the way he's recalling his childhood. And it almost reads like you might read a Facebook post today or something of people who are recalling the good old days and the funny things that happened and, and remember that so and so lived over just over there. And that was the house where so and so grew up. And then he jumps in with a story about a, uh, some kind of servant who's clipped off an insolent farmer's ears and yeah. brought and brought them in a covered dish to the lady of the house. Right. So what, <laughs> it kind of jumped off the page, and I, I confess, I I initially thought I must have misread this. This must be ears of corn. Right. Um, and then it's clear later in the poem that there is no way to interpret that other than literally <laughs> a butler has clipped a farmer's ears and put them in a covered dish, which. I wasn't sure. What do you think Yates is getting at there? I wasn't sure if he was, uh, if he sensed how strange that was, or if he was just telling yet another story of of life. <laughs> yeah, no, I think he senses how strange strange it is. The the kind of backstory, biographical backstory here. The poem's called "The Tower." He bought a tower in the west of Ireland that I think he self consciously thought of as his own ancestral place even though it was not right. his family's ancestral place it was almost as if he's trying to construct out of this ruin uh, you know decrepit tower he's trying to construct a mythology of himself and what that story is about mrs french in the ear is um it's just one of the old folk legends of that particular part of ireland he heard it while walking around the village soon after mm. he bought the tower and i think he knew he realized how strange that was that, that this is one of those stories that was in the fabric of that place he's trying to write a new a mythology of himself he right. is um the tower becomes an extension of his own his own mythic identity as as, as a poet and so right. as he as he begins the poem with you know my body's breaking down but my but i still have all of this imaginative power i think he's suggesting that what i'm going to do with that is write myself as a mythic figure into this new place this the you know it, with with my tower and my my new home here right and and i was remembering the first line where he says he's he's pacing the battlements and when you describe that and the way that the legend of this um this servant clipping the ears of the farmer the way that it is part of the land it it does remind me of a lot of people's feelings about battlefields or you know the way that events like that have a way of uh invading the ground or 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 permeating the ground and living with the land mhm mm yeah so i pace upon the battlements and stare on the foundations of a house or where tree like a sooty finger 
starts from the earth and send imagination forth under the day's declining beam. So the images of the foundation of the tower, uh, there's almost like the root of a tree is prying its way into the tower's foundation. And what does it send out? It sends imagination. It sends the stories of this place. It sends, um, you know, so Yates is able to harvest all of those resources uh, from, from, the, from the place that he's um, planted himself. Right. Now, Yeats in this poem, I mean, a, a lot of these poems had kind of, I mean, if you've read any poetry at all, you've seen this done a lot of times is how poems will shift to, they'll describe something and then they'll shift to the importance of poetry or the importance of art. It's kind of like how rock bands always seem to have a song about what it's what it's like to rock all night. <laughs> right, right. Um, a road song. Yeah, <laughs> a song about rock and roll. Right. And Yeats, uh, he makes kind of a different shift in this. He almost seems like he's he's giving up poetry or he's setting it aside for something. Is that the right way to interpret where this poem ends up? I wonder. I mean, I, I think you're right that his own life and his art become almost inextricably intertwined here. It, you know, is this poem autobiographical? To some extent, yes. Is it a complete fabrication of his imagination? To some extent, yes. It's a myth of himself. And, and so I don't think he is, well, he claims in the poem to be renouncing poetry. And he, he says, you know, my body's breaking down, so I'd better just acknowledge that I need to kind of, um, slow my imaginative side down. Mm -hmm. Um, in the, at the very end of the poem, he says, now shall I make my soul compelling it to study in a learned school till the wreck of body, slow decay of blood, testy delirium or dull decrepitude, or what worse evil come, the death of friends or death of every brilliant eye that made a catch in the breath, seem but the clouds of the sky when the horizon fades, or a bird's sleepy cry among the deepening shades. Hmm. In other words, I will make my soul study in a learned school so that when my body decays and my body wrecks i will you know be able to withstand that i'll be able to to survive that so he's claiming that yes he's he's renouncing the imaginative work of of poetry but i think the the poem itself and the beauty of its images and the, and, the, and its rhythms kind of undercut that right one doesn't believe the speaker of this poem when he seems to be saying i'm giving all of this up Right. And, you know, Yeats is such a beautiful poet. It's, you know, he's almost like, uh, uh, Paul McCartney when he's writing, uh, when he wrote the Liverpool Oratorio. And it was like, he just could not stop putting melodies into it. Yeah. Like he just, you know, they just pour out of him and he knows that they're good. And they, you know, it, yeah. It's like Yeats, he's, I think he was the uh, oldest of all of, you know, the firstborn of all of the poets we're looking at. And, and modernism for him, he was already a, a fully developed poet, I think, when modernism was really taking hold. And although I think it influenced him and changed his, some of his later work, it's almost like he never uh, stopped that, uh, having that ability to just write these beautiful lines of verse that maybe maybe we could see him as more of a bridge between the old and the new absolutely i mean i i think he's one of the most lyrical poets in english and the rhythms of his poems are sublime um, mm -hmm. and i think you're right that these are things he learned as a young man and he's never uh one of the great things about yeats is that 
as he develops and his style changes so many times throughout the course of his career, he never abandons his earlier modes. They just become kind of uh, added onto so that there's this continual accrual of new abilities, new resources. So that lyricism from his early work becomes uh, tinged with history in his middle career, the history of the Irish independence movement and so on. And then in this, these later poems here um, become much more introspective and much more focused on um, self-mythologizing, which we often associate with modernism. Mm. But but those earlier those earlier dimensions are still there, right? Well, it's a it's a fascinating take on on uh, the idea of ruins. It it was a surprise to me that we weren't in the the world of uh, you know ancient Roman ruins or something, but actually this self mythologizing as as you noted. Um, okay, so let's jump to Wallace Stevens. Great. We're going to look at a couple of poems of his. Wallace Stevens is one of those, uh, he's, he's, I'd say he's kind of a heavy poet, but he's also constantly delightful. And this one, we're looking at a couple of poems of his. The first one was written in 1919 when Stevens was 40. And it's the, called The Anecdote of the Jar. And this poem is baffling. I don't know. It's not that long. Maybe we should just read the whole thing. Sounds good. Do you want to read this one? I've been um, reading the poems. Why, <laughs> why don't you go ahead? All right. Anecdote of the Jar. I placed a jar in Tennessee, and round it was upon a hill. It made the slovenly wilderness surround that hill. The wilderness rose up to it, and sprawled around no longer wild. The jar was round upon the ground, and tall and of a port in air. It took dominion everywhere. The jar was gray and bare. It did not give of bird or bush like nothing else in Tennessee. <laughs> so it is, a, I mean, as, you're, as you point out, I think there's a, sometimes people think of Stevens as this very interior poet, so interior, you know, mapping the, um, the mind's inner workings and the soul's inner workings that people that you can't have access to it. He's inaccessible. On the other hand, he's deeply silly sometimes. He's, he's got poems that are all all about wordplay. Right. And then here, the specificity of Tennessee. Um, <laughs> and I think he's he's kind of luxuriating in just the 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 strangeness of that word and the way it sounds. Tennessee. Yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess what attract what the reason I suggested we might look at this poem is because of the idea of this human, obviously the intervention of the human into a natural landscape. Mm -hmm. I placed a jar in Tennessee. And then how does that landscape interact with the human edifice? Uh, does the human edifice start to break down as, as in a ruin? You know, there seems to be this overgrowing dynamic like we saw in Frost uh, Directive. The wilderness rose up to it and sprawled around no longer wild. So, you know, somehow the wilderness is reacting to the placement of the jar. Right. But then it says it took dominion everywhere. And, right. And the it, I mean, we've been, the it previously in the poem, the it in a couple of places has clearly been the jar. Um, so are we saying that the jar is taking dominion here or is is that jumping to a reference to nature? No, I think it's still the jar. I mean, I, th I think this is a kind of reverse ruin in a sense where what gets <laughs> changed uh, is the wilderness, not not the the jar. And, right. And so the, the placement of the human edifice changes everything about the 
natural landscape here. Mm -hmm. um, the wilderness rose up to it and sprawled around, no longer wild. Because the jar had been placed there, this was not a wild place any longer. Um, the jar, it, took dominion everywhere. It did not give of bird or bush. Um, so, yeah, I think the jar is, you know, this kind of stubborn object that, that placed by the speaker that, that changes the, the whole uh, atmosphere of this place. Well, it, it is a fascinating idea that a jar, it, it clearly is this sort of plain and unadorned and and gray and bare. He seems to be going out of his way to to really say, you know, this wasn't any special jar. This would be the kind of thing that everyone has in their house and, and you know, people practically give them away or, you know, just throw them out. And on the other hand, the way that it, a jar is a pretty amazing thing, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, a it's... glass jar, like a lot of these mass-produced items are are pretty incredible when you think about it and the technology of it. I mean, we're we're a long ways from Ozymandias, and we have here, you know, Wallace Stevens or the poet or the, the speaker placing a jar in Tennessee. That's his, his king of kings, you know, is instead just this uh, wandering poet um, <laughs> imposing himself on the landscape. We're all kings of kings. Uh, yeah, I think that's part of the message here. I also think that, that there, there's something about the smallness of the jar and the insignificance of this gesture of placing the jar there. Mm -hmm. That it, what what it, what seems to be so insignificant, I put this jar down, changes everything. You know, the slightest intervention. That, you know, if we want if we want to delude ourselves into thinking that there's such a thing as pure wilderness, separate from from human culture, this poem argues against that. You know, the 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 most the smallest gesture of placing the jar changes uh, everything. Mm, right. So Stevens, I mean, he always seemed so ahead of his time to me. Do you look at a poem like this? I mean, this was, what did I say this was, 1919? Yeah, mm -hmm. 1919. Was anyone else writing poems like this that, that had this kind of uh, idiosyncratic speaker and, and take on the world? Or does he fit in with the modernists? Or is he kind of standing apart from not only the modernists, but pretty much everybody who went before or, or followed? I mean, I wouldn't say everyone who went before. There certainly were poets who were interested in wordplay and kind of nonsense language. Even Emily Dickinson is a kind of mm -hmm. master of um, of the kind of nonsense uh, word. As and she also has that sense of being very serious, and um, well, at the same time, some of her poems have very playful dimension yes. to it. Yes, yes. So you I, know, I, I never, I never made that connection before, but you're right. Um, I, I feel like those two had they had time shifted just a little bit, they probably would have been great admirers of one another. Right. So I, I don't think Stevens is sort of out of nowhere or sine qua non or something like that, but um, certainly he is uh, different from Eliot and from Pound and from uh, William Carlos Williams, who are writing at the same time, and he's he's very different from Yeats, and he has this very distinctive. Um, but deeply American voice. I think the, the the lineage with Dickinson is one thing that I that marks him as an American. Mm, right. Okay. Well, we have another poem by him to take a look at, and this one. <laughs> this this is one a strange and <laughs> hilarious poem. <laughs> yeah. The title of this one is "The Man on the Dump." Uh, what's happening here? So apparently, this is a comes from a story in Stephen's life. 
Oh, um, and I, I sorry to interrupt. I I should mention that this one is about twenty years later. This is uh, nineteen thirty-eight or or thirty-nine around there, and it's uh, Stevens is now sixty when he wrote mm-hmm. this poem. And apparently, he and his daughter Holly used to take a daily walk, and they walked past a vacant lot in their home city of Hartford, Connecticut, and there was a man who uh, sort of made his home on the uh, in the vacant vacant lot. And the two of them invented uh, an elaborate biography of the the man on the dump, um, that he was from Estonia and that he had had this elaborate past before he immigrated to the United States and and so on. So what we get in this poem is imagining a, a further imagining of that man on the dump and how he is basically taking the fragments available in a, a junkyard, basically, and putting them together, making, you know, building new realities out of these, out of these thrown away fragments. Mm. And, and the fragments are specifically described here. That's the, the wrapper on the can of pears and the cat in the paper bag, the corset, the box from Estonia, the tiger chest for tea. Uh, right. So these extremely specific and vivid, vivid objects are, are what the, what the man's working with. Okay. And then there's a real shift. I don't know if there's a, a section. I don't want to jump ahead of you here. Was there a section of the poem that you wanted to read? Yeah, let me look here. I wanted to look at the middle of the poem, I think. I, I suppose I'm interested in this poem about how the, 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 the main character of the poem, the man on the dump, works with the objects in the dump that might be dismissed as garbage, as trash. Um, to make something beautiful. So again, just like in HD, taking the horror and the ruin of the London Blitz and using that as a prompt to create art. Here, I think we have the man on the dump who is surrounded by the detritus of of modern life and yet is able to 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 build something out of it. So, middle of the poem here, he says, uh, "Now in the time of spring." Azaleas, trilliums, myrtle, viburnums, daffodils, blue flocks. Between that disgust and this, between the things that are on the dump, azaleas and so on, and those that will be azaleas and so on, one feels the purifying change. One rejects the trash. And for me, the idea there is that in the time of spring, when these flowers, the azaleas, the trilliums, the myrtle, are all in the full burst of of bloom and they're uh, they're beautiful between that disgust before they came into bloom and this the inevitability that they will die right between the things that are on the dump the azaleas and so on and those that will be on the dump you know we're all headed toward the dump is kind of the message there one feels the purifying change one rejects the trash and i think there's this kind of embrace of the idea that uh, the fragments and the and the and the garbage, the dis, the detritus of of life, are the things we use to uh, to to make ourselves. One rejects the trash. That feels to me. It feels to me like this poem is sort of a roller coaster, and that moment is where we're at the peak of the roller coaster, where one rejects the trash. And up until that point, that could almost be like a a conventional poem making the point that, you know, these azaleas are going to grow out of the trash. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I feel like he's on a completely different path 
Uh, I'd be interested to hear how you interpret the next couple of stanzas because it almost seems like he's undermining the poet in looking at the dump and seeing the azaleas and seeing the sort of beautiful uh, reclamation and regeneration coming out of the trash. But instead, he's basically saying, yeah, that's exactly what a poet would say, isn't it? And then the rest of it seems to me to be attacking cliches of, of poetry and and kind of mocking the uh, the ideas that, that poets tend to come up with and uh, basically trying to get back to the idea that there is no beautifying a dump. There's a dump there. This is uh-huh. this is a dump and and um, and face it, you know, right. and, and don't try to prettify it with your poetry, but accept the reality of of what it is. And, and poetry can be deceptive. Well, there, there's that. What, I want to know what you think of this. This great image. One sits and beats an old tin can lard pail. One yeah. beats and beats for that which one believes. That's what one wants to get near. And if we take your reading that, you know, you could easily suggest that here's this madman just pounding on an old tin can, imagining that he is um, pounding out some important new rhythm. One beats and beats for that which one believes. But actually what's there is just a madman on the dump pounding on a large, on a, on a tin can. But it, to me, there's something in the... Um, in the diction there and just in the in the rhythm of those lines that make me think that um, he's not making fun of this guy on the dump. Well, those those lines, I feel like, is where he's basically saying this is this is what I would like to be doing instead of writing poetry. I would like to be the man on the dump who's mm-hmm. just accepting reality and, and living and feeling without it being aestheticized. Interesting, Um, yeah. So let me read the stanza right before that. So we'll pick up where you left off with one feels the purifying change, one rejects the trash. And then the next line is, that's the moment when the moon creeps up to the bubbling of bassoons. And I feel like he's already kind of in this mocking, it's almost like a high style. Yeah, absolutely. And then he says, that's the time one looks at the elephant colorings of tires. And again, that's sort of like, you know, only a poet would look at a tire and say, oh, that's the same color as an elephant. And, it, you know, it's 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 like uh, he's making fun of the descriptive power of of writers. Then it says everything is shed and the moon comes up as the moon. All its images are in the dump. And you see as a man, not like an image of a man, you see the moon rise in the empty sky. That to me is him saying, hey, poets, I know what you guys would do with the dump. You guys would talk about how the tires are the color of elephants and that the moon is, you know, right. you hear the bubbling of bassoons as the moon creeps up. And then uh, after we get the the man uh, sitting and beating the old tin can and the lard pail, it says, could it after all be merely oneself as superior as the ear to a crow's voice? Did the nightingale torture the ear, peck the heart and scratch the mind? And does the ear solace itself in peevish birds? Is it peace? Is it a philosopher's honeymoon one finds on the dump? Is it to sit among mattresses of the dead, bottles, pots, shoes, and grass, and murmur, Aptist Eve? Is it to hear the bladder of grackles and say, Invisible priest? Is it to eject, to pull the day to pieces and cry, stanza my stone <laughs> yeah <laughs> which to me he's all certainly of that, mocking yeah yeah he's mocking style. poetry there but then it has this majestic last line which is where was it one first heard of the truth the the 
Yeah. And that's to me where he's bringing it back, right? Where he's saying the truth is not in the beautiful phrase stands of my stone. <laughs> it's in the the. Yeah, it's in the the. That's where it is. Yeah, no, I think I, I think you're right. But to me, I guess what interests me is that the discovery here is that the is that the objects in the dump are not unpoetic. That they that they are the materials that we can use to make a life or to make right to make beauty out of it's not these again the high tone language that you're describing it's it's the when the moon is at its peak the moon comes up as the moon uh it reveals the truth and the reality of all these uh, broken fragments in the dump oh boy that's gonna do it for this episode of the history of literature i had to leave part of it on the cutting room floor Professor Bill and I went on to discuss what contemporary poets might think of when they visit ruins today. We wondered if the internet might have turned everything that came before it into a cultural ruin. We're going to have to leave that to the poets. My thanks to Professor Bill Hogan for joining me today. What a treat. I loved his phrase, a reverse ruin. Ah, how excellent. Speaking of reverse ruins, you might be headed for a ruinous moment of running out of History of Literature podcast episodes. Well, good news. You can reverse your ruin by... Wait. (laughs) Who wrote this? (laughs) This is ridiculous. I can't believe I'm reading this. You can reverse your ruin? After we just read Stevens and Frost and Yeats and HD, Shelley, Shelley is poor Shelley. He's spinning in his grave down there in the Protestant cemetery in Rome, which actually is officially called the non-Catholic cemetery in an effort to be inclusive (laughs) or in an effort to exclude people inclusively. Have you ever been to that cemetery? Guess what's there? A pyramid. And it's not ruined at all. It's still quite intact. No cause for despair when you visit. Well, apart from all the dead bodies in the ground, I guess. (laughs) Well, yikes. That was an ugly swerve. Maybe I should stick to the script after all. So yes, reverse your ruin, my friends, by signing up for the History of Literature podcast. And while you're there subscribing... Pop the little five-star rating or type up a little favorable review. We could really use it. It would really help us out. And then go home. And by home, I mean log on to Facebook and Twitter and tell all your literate friends to give us a try. Well, your your pre-literate friends, too. Why not? We welcome everyone. And we appreciate everyone. We're very glad to have you join us. I'm Jack Wilson. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.